Let's open our Bibles to Galatians as we think about other places and we think about ourselves. These are the kind of things we would want to see with pastors in other places and Christians in other places and churches, but also with us. Because if we don't have the gospel, we don't have any true missions and we don't have any true message really and ultimately. And so uh, Galatians is awesome, even Galatians 2 when it comes to advancing and promoting the gospel. The outline I'm going to offer you tonight would be five ways in which the Apostle Paul advances the gospel in Galatians 2. So if you want to take notes, I'm going to have five ways Paul advances the gospel. Uh, Again, hopefully it will help us to not only be more faithful ourselves, but to pray for others. Um, So we're going to look at the whole second chapter, so it's kind of an overview. First way Paul uh, advances the gospel in Galatians 2 is he refused to be a renegade. He refused to be a renegade. And this will be in the first ten verses. What we're going to see, and what I mean by refuse to be a renegade, is he is very, very, very much convinced that Jesus appeared to him. It wasn't imagination. It wasn't in some kind of weird dream. It really happened. And so he knows he's to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Fully convinced. And even with that, he wants affirmation by other apostles. Okay, so in that sense, he's not being a renegade. He's going to do what Jesus said, but he's going to do what Jesus said and have that be complemented by affirmation by other apostles. So it's interesting. You'll, you'll feel the, I don't want to say tension, but there's this strong commitment. I know this is right. And yet I wanted to make sure I was on board and everyone else was on board with this being right. It's kind of fascinating. First 10 verses. Go ahead and read it with me if you would. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. I'm going to just stop for a second there. Well, we can go ahead and read the, we can go ahead and read the next verse. Uh, that says, To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. We're going to come back to that statement in just a little while, but if you want to put your finger on the text for a second, hopefully my introduction kind of helped introduce it. So he's going to go to Jerusalem because he wants to, to, to make sure, and they're on the same page, even though he's fully convinced from this revelation. And then it's a little bit like he's interrupting himself, because as I was going to do that, And we brought Titus, and Titus wasn't circumcised because you don't have to be circumcised to become a Christian. You don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. Okay? They were trying to get us to compromise the gospel. So now he's off on the compromise the gospel thing. So as he was going, that disaster happened. So it could be confusing. It doesn't have to be confusing. We'll come back to the verse 5 in a little while. But for now, let's keep going in verse 6. 
And from those who seem to be influential, so he's picking up that idea again that he talked about before, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality, another qualifier. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that would be the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. He's talking about Jesus. Verse 9, And when James and Cephas, or Peter and John, those apostles, right, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised, to the Jews. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I can't tell you how many times I've read that and just kind of went, what? Just because I'm kind of slow on the uptake and, and that kind of thing. I'm a C student. But when, when, you, when you read it and you reread it and you reread it and you just try to keep your bearings about you, it's pretty straightforward. I'm headed there to get confirmation. I got confirmation. They agreed. Even the pillars, the influential ones, they agreed, yes, the same Jesus who has called us to focus on the Jews has called you to focus on the Gentiles. Same gospel message. We're supportive of you. You're supportive of us. We're definitely uh, playing from the same playbook, same Savior. It's pretty straightforward. But he weaves into it as he's on his way, this problem that arises, these false teachers who want to sneak in and say, yes, it's Jesus and you've got to keep the law. And that's why Titus has to be circumcised. There's no way you can actually be acceptable before God unless you keep the law. It's Jesus and, and, and Paul gets worked up about it. And then he's going to talk more about that. And we'll talk more about it. But it's pretty straightforward, and it's an important part of his argument because he's about ready to go toe-to-toe and, and blast Peter. So he's leading us to that point. Hey, Peter agreed, and the other apostles agreed. And then there was this problem, and it's a gospel-compromising problem. So first thing I think we need to know is he, he wasn't some kind of maverick. He wasn't some kind of renegade. Uh, direct revelation would tend to make you a renegade, <laughs> okay, if you weren't godly. Um, and yet he's going to compliment that and say, you know what, there's, there's corroboration, you might want to say. Um, there's affirmation. There's agreement. What's our takeaway on that? It's not, it's not a one-to-one takeaway because we're not apostles and we're not Paul and we're not any of those guys in the immediate situation. Um, maybe by takeaway we could say, well, we, we, should, we have Bibles and we have convictions and we can read the text and draw... Um, conclusions and have strong convictions about things. That's my personal takeaway. I want to be that kind of person. Jesus hasn't come to me directly, but I have his word and I have great confidence in his word, but I don't want to be Mr. Renegade. I do it all on my own. I'm all by myself and I don't care what any other Christian ever says. Um, so my takeaway is, you know, I, I like to make sure I'm not the only one. I'm not crazy. You know, as the saying goes, Paul's not arguing this way, but for us, you know, if you're the only one that's come up with this view, you're probably not right. Um, so I'm at least application-wise taking that away. Uh, I, sh- I should find corroboration. I don't know if that's the right word or not. Um, compliment, 
um, with others, even who are respected. Isn't it interesting how Paul wants to acknowledge that, you know, but I'm no respecter of persons. But I did go to those who are respectable. It's interesting. Okay, let's go to the second one. Second way in which the Apostle Paul advances the gospel in Galatians 2 is he absolutely refused to compromise the gospel. Absolutely refused to compromise the gospel. I want to take you back to verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Zero tolerance policy, right? And what's going to happen? What's going to happen is, at least in the way we think, that's not loving. That's not loving. And actually what he's doing is, he's doing the unloving thing, if you will, perceived that way, in order to love. For your benefit. For the Galatian believer's benefit. Because I love you, I went toe-to-toe with those punks. Perceived as unloving, perceived as divisive, and, in the, and it was divisive. He didn't want to be with them on the same page. They're not playing on the same team. And so I stood up and did what would be perceived as the, the angry young man thing and the, uh, the conflict kind of thing. Why? So the gospel would be preserved for you guys. I did it because I care about you. I love you. I love Christ. I love the gospel. I had to do that. Even for a moment. I love the the emphatic nature of it all. Both feet firmly planted. He wasn't going to pretend like it was okay. What's int- and he, he wasn't going to do that at all. And he could have. Well, you know, if it's really going to be a stumbling block and it's really going to be a problem, can't we just go ahead and, uh, as D.A. Carson would say, uh, you know, have Titus done? <laughs> um. The answer is no, because he's dealing with people who are saying, you have to be circumcised to be justified. And if you're thinking that and teaching that, you don't understand the justifying work of Jesus. If it's faith and, you don't get it. So he could say to Timothy in a different kind of situation, yeah, Timothy the Gentile should be circumcised. It's just going to get. It's just going to be a problem. It's just going to create too many concerns and too many questions. Um, it's not to be justified. It's just going to be one of those things that we can go ahead and. and it's interesting how Paul flexes in that way, but when it's it's a gospel issue, not just some kind of cultural issue. It's a gospel issue. Both gloves off. Not even for a moment am I going to tolerate this. They're worth fighting over. And that's what's happening here, even though it's going to be, be perceived as negative. Okay, number three, a third way that the Apostle Paul advances the gospel in Galatians 2. We'll, we'll look at verse 5 again for this, so this will be super fast. He wasn't just for the gospel. He wasn't just for the gospel. He was against everything that would be against the gospel. And sometimes we like to say, we don't want to be the church that's only known for what we're against. I've said that before. I don't want to be the church that's only known for what we're against. But we can say, well, we're not against anything. We're just for Jesus. 
Um, we don't want to. We don't want to be against anyone or anything. That's impossible, right? Paul's so for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that any little tinkering with that, he would have to say, I'm against you, I'm going to stand and not tolerate you for a moment. We ha- by necessity, we have to be against things. Um, there's a little book that Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote. When did Martin Lloyd-Jones die? Like the early 80s, late 70s? Famous British preacher, medical doctor turned preacher. A lot of you like Lloyd-Jones stuff. Um, listen to a Lloyd-Jones sermon. Um, fascinating, great accent. He was a Welshman, uh, but then he pastored in London. Anyway, uh, Lloyd-Jones has a little book called What is an Evangelical? And the answer today is nothing. <laughs> because it really doesn't have much meaning at all. Um, but it once upon a time did because ev- evangel means gospel. So gospel people, uh, evangelicals in, in the old sense, in the good sense, they're people who are for the gospel, promoting it and defending it. Today it kind of doesn't mean anything. But in that older book, what is an evangelical? One of the marks of an evangelical, Lloyd-Jones said, was that they're against things. You're not an evangelical if you're not against things because you're not really for the gospel unless you are against all things that threaten the gospel. And I think that's wise and helpful. I think that's really what Paul's getting at here. Okay, let's go to the next one. A third way that Paul, uh, the apostle, advances the gospel in Galatians 2, he opposed the unopposable. He opposed the unopposable. I wanted to say he opposed the Pope. Um, Peter's not really the Pope. Um... I wanted to say, or we could say, he opposed Rocky. Uh, <laughs> not Balboa, but remember? I mean, it's a, it's a big deal, and I kind of like the Rocky one. Um, Jesus did say to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, Upon this rock I will build my church. And you could say, well, that's not actually Peter, it's the statement. It's interesting how many Protestants historically have actually said it's Peter. Not because Peter was the first pope, but Peter is an apostle. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the church is built on the apostles and prophets. So I don't want to cause a church split. You can have whatever view you want to have, except the Pope view. Um, but the, he's a big deal. He for sure is an apostle. And the church is built on the apostles and prophets, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Whether it was his statement or Peter, Peter is a major, major, major player, inner circle with Jesus. And so for Paul to go toe-to-toe and take down Peter is a huge big deal. It speaks to boldness. It speaks to the most gut-level, genuine, heartfelt conviction you could have. And I like learning that from him. So remember what we've already read in the first ten verses. Peter agrees, thumbs up, regarding Gentiles. The other apostles agree, thumbs up, regarding Gentiles. They don't have to become Jews first. And then let's read 11 to 14. So look at, look at verse 11 with me if you would. But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. 
But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So you can put your finger there for a second before we go to verse 13. Peter was okay. Gentiles, yeah, as long as they believe in Jesus, they're fine. They don't have to become Jews by being circumcised and, and everything's fine. And I'll fellowship with them. They're spiritually clean. They're not filthy dogs like I used to think they were. Uh, not only that, I would even not, not only spend time with them and eat with them, I would even eat lobster and rabbit with them. You know, pass the kebab. Let's have a rabbit shawarma or whatever they would have then. I don't know what. Um, it's Peter gets it Peter understands justification is by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone everything is fine and I can have fellowship with these people and then social pressure comes and he's afraid and Paul just blasts him for it verse 13 and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him So that even Barnabas, remember Barnabas, we learned earlier in the chapter, Barnabas is the one who had come with Paul. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. See, again, what's happening is they're, they're back to thinking Gentiles are unclean. Gentiles aren't acceptable before God until they become like us Jews and they obey the law and are circumcised. They're unclean. We shouldn't spend time with them. We shouldn't eat their food. But we just were. And now Barnabas is even starting to, to see Peter, who's, who's the Pope, not really, but Peter, who's the powerful guy, was with Jesus, inner circle. Well, that must be right then. Apostolic authority. He starts thinking the same way. 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? I saw what you were doing before. And and because of the truth of the gospel, because of the revelation you've received, a la Acts 10, I, I notice your pants are getting a little tight from lobster, Peter. You've been, you've been enjoying the good life. Reading between the lines. That's what it means in Greek, right? <laughs> I mean, Peter, Peter's been enjoying these freedoms and he's been affirming Gentile salvation. It's not through becoming a Jew. He, it's been his practice. And he's saying, now look, now, now you're trying to reverse it for those Gentiles? You're a compromiser. So much so that it's blurring the lines about what the gospel is. Because it's either faith alone in Christ alone, or it's faith plus works, which is really an assault on Christ. Hats off to Paul for not just being... I mean, again, I love the whole context, not just the, not just the isolated context. Earlier on affirming, respecting authority, respectability. They agreed, I agreed, we're on the same page. Now I'm going to take that logic out and I'm going to say, Peter was a problem. Boldness is a good thing to learn from that. Okay, number five. A fifth way, the Apostle Paul advances the gospel in Galatians 2 and we can learn from this fifth way. Verse 15 says, oh, I I didn't give you the fifth way. Um, Fifth way would be, he never never seemed to tire of articulating 
justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. He never seemed to tire of articulating that, promoting that, defending that, and fleshing out the implications. Using logic to unpack it and say, this is why your view is faulty. This is why this is a problem. This is why what you're doing doesn't add to it, actually takes away. And he does it again and again and again and again and again. And sometimes I think, you know, I feel like a broken record. And he's kind of the broken record because if you don't have this, you don't have the gospel. And so I, I like what he does here. It's a little bit complicated, 15 to 21, <clears throat> but I don't think it has to be. So just some comments along the way as he unpacks what it is and its implications uh, in order to protect the gospel. So 15 says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Okay? We're clean, they're unclean. And they would have been called, they're the sinners. They're the bad guys. Yet we know that a person, I wrote in my notes, Jew or Gentile, that's going to be his point here. Yet we know that a person, whether they're Jew or Gentile, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. I also wrote in my notes there, Jew or Gentile. So in verses 15 to 16, that's what he's arguing. Yeah, they're, they're sinners. But you know what? We, we know, we've already agreed on the gospel. We know that the only way anyone is justified is by faith in Jesus. So why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you reintroducing Old Testament law? It doesn't even make sense. Sure, we've called them sinners our whole life, and they're the unclean ones. They're not part of our people. But we know, you guys know this, he's saying. Justification is by faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone. <clears throat> so why are you trying to get them to do faith and works? Then 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. And apparently what's happening is that was the accusation being made. If you go down that road, Paul, and your, your rationale, what you're, what you're going to do is, is you're going to end up saying that Christ is a servant of sin. Because you're associating Christ with those sinners, Gentiles. And that makes him a servant of sin. So what we're going to do is we're going to have them become proselyte Jews, be circumcised, obey God's law, and now they're not sinners anymore. And now Jesus doesn't have to be associated with sinners. Because we wouldn't want Jesus to be a servant of sin. Because that's, that's bad. And Paul's responding to that kind of argument. And, and, and he's saying... Certainly not. That's wrong-headed. He uses that strong statement in the Greek text like he does earlier on. If you bring a different gospel. Or he actually uses, excuse me, he uses what he uses in Romans 6. You know, shall we, shall we sin so there's more grace? No, 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 no. You, you totally misunderstand. Super strong. And now he talks about why. 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, and I think what he's doing is saying, 
we get back under the law, what's been torn down in Christ, if we go back to the law, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now I'm a sinner again. I'm a violator of the law. If I go back under the law system, which has been torn down in Christ, if I go back to the system, I'm a lawbreaker. One commentator put it this way. Uh, it was kind of helpful uh, regarding the I, the letter, uh, the, the word I. For if I rebuild, it says, the I in verse 19 is not primarily personal. Paul uses it to refer to anyone who behaves in the manner indicated. For if I, or if anyone, if you guys, you're trying to do this, rebuild what's been torn down, which is the law, if you go back and put yourself under that system, you're just going to be a violator of it. you got a problem. Why do you want to go back under the legal system? 19 says, For through the law, I died to the law. Now, when you only read that statement, you might go, what? I don't even understand that. But what he's about ready to do helps us understand it. If you're trusting in Christ who fulfilled the law, you died to the law. If you're united to Christ by faith, you're no longer under it because he fulfilled it. So read it with that in mind and then you'll see that it fits the context. 19 again, for through the law and your identity with Christ as it relates to the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. I think we understand 19 better if we read 20 also. I have been crucified with Christ, which, by the way, is how you die to the law. (laughs) It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. 21. I do not. Maybe even writing in the margin here, I did. As one who affirms salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, I do not nullify the grace of God. Apparently that's what he was being accused of. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And we know that's not the case. And they knew it wasn't the case. One way to make sure you're not guilty of breaking the law anymore, as I've said before, is... Die. <laughs> okay? If, if, if the police are on your tail and you don't want to have what you've done be held against you, you don't want to be incarcerated, die. Well, it's not a perfect one-to-one illustration, but you're no longer guilty of violating the law, at least actively, because it's over. Well, if you're trusting in Jesus as your Savior, Allah. Romans 6, you died with Him. And you've been raised with Him. Christ fulfills the law. You die with Christ. You die to the law. It's over. It's taken care of. It's done done with. So why in the world, he's saying, would you want to go back to the system? Why in the world would would you want to go back to say it's faith in Jesus? Because no one was denying that at this point in time. And obedience to the law, in this case, circumcision. He's saying, if you're thinking that and saying that, you totally don't get it. You don't get the fact that Christ paid it all. He did it all. 
totally, completely done, taken care of. And so he's so strong about it there in the last verse. I do not, as one affirming grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, if that's really how it happened, a right standing before God happened by obedience to the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He didn't have to die. Just through law keeping. Now, at least with these people he's talking to, they... They agreed with him up front about what the gospel was. And they agreed about his death, resurrection, life. We don't always have that in common with people that we have to disagree with. Um, I know plenty of people who don't, don't agree with me on that, so I can't use the same kind of argumentation and the same kind of uh, defense. But actually, in Omaha, Nebraska, we have plenty of people surrounding us who would say Christ died for our sins. was raised again from the dead. And as long as you do these things, God will accept you. So if we're going to be like Paul, it's not exactly the same, but if we're going to use the same kind of model and learn some things from it, we can say, oh, here's where we agree. You, you agree that he lived a perfect life. You agree that he died a substitutionary sin, sinner's death even though he was perfect and he rose again from the dead. And, and you agree with those things. But let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about where the disconnect is. Why I say it's faith alone in Christ alone and you say it's faith plus obedience. And how, you know what, that, that doesn't even work for you. It doesn't even make sense. Um, you're, you're getting more than you really bargained for because if, if that's really true, then, then, then Jesus didn't pay it all. And if he fulfilled the law on our behalf, then why, why do I have to fulfill the law? This doesn't make sense. And that's, that's where Paul's going. And so it's helpful. Um, I love having those kinds of conversations. Uh, and there's pushback, and they'll say, well, well, actually, we're not talking about the law. We're just talking about the church's obedience and those kinds of things. And, uh, and there's good ways to argue back and forth. But let's at least learn from Paul some of these good principles about um, promoting and defending gospel. Gospel of grace, grace alone, not grace plus, which is not really grace is what he's saying.